Well, today is Veterans Day, as Patrick mentioned earlier, and, and it's celebrated uh, every year. Steve, would you grab me one of those wooden uh, table-like column things? I'm not sure what we call this piece of furniture. A Bible table. Perfect. Uh, today is Veterans Day, <clears throat> celebrated every year on, on November 11th. And, and on this day, as we did earlier, we give thanks uh, for those people who have served, uh, for those who've served our country in the armed services to protect and defend the liberties, which I believe if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, I think that most days we take for granted, right? Now, originally, uh, November 11th was celebrated as Armistice Day, commemorating the cessation of hostilities between Allied forces and Germany, um, ending World War I. And uh, it officially became Veterans Day in 1954 when President Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, signed the proposed bill into law. And there's your fun fact of the day. The more you know. When thank you for the giggle back there. When, when thinking of those who have served um, and the sacrifices made, it, it, it causes me to pause um, and consider what all this means. Um, as Reagan was kind of singing about beautifully, this is living now, and, and, and how our relationship with the Heavenly Father changes the way that we see life. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But what is it that we now have the opportunities to do, or even the responsibility to do, with these liberties that were so uh, freely given to us, right? Um, that, that, that many of us uh, didn't do anything to earn. Um, did you vote? Yeah? Oh. Uh, if you did, you were more than one of 113 million Americans who voted. But who's counting? <laughs> this is... <laughs> some of you will get that later this afternoon. This is a, a significant increase, 113 million is a significant increase over the 84 million who voted in the 2014 midterm election, and that's good. Um, r- regardless of how or for who you placed your vote, um, you are uh, doing your civic duty, uh, right? But, but what else? What is uh, a life well lived in the Christian sense in America in 2018? What does it look like here in this place? What does it look like now in this time? Does it mean simply being good? Uh, and, and if so, what does that word even mean, that vague and subjective term? Does it mean living life not doing certain things? Or does it mean just showing up here in this place, in this church? What is a life well lived in a Christian sense? In 2018, America. I believe our text this morning has something to say to us about how we're called to live both as individuals and as a community together, here and today. And so we're going to be in, uh, spend some time in Mark chapter 12. I invite you to open up your Bibles now. But before we, we jump into that scripture, I do want to give it just a bit of context because. Um, one of the, the, the treasures 
uh, the advantages of following the Revised Common Lectionary is we, is we really read widely from the Bible, right? So last week we were in Deuteronomy, this week we're back in Mark, and, and all throughout this year we've been following, for the most part, through Mark, and, and it follows the liturgical calendar. So at Easter time, you're reading uh, passion narrative stuff, the, the, the last week and Holy Week, and, and as we turn the corner here and we get, uh, we get ready, we're actually going to change and we'll start talking about birth of Jesus. But but where we are here and today in Mark 12 is in Holy Week. So I want to set that up. Here we are in Jesus's last week, right? And in this last week of ministry, we find Jesus nearing the end. And he's in the midst of a series of publicly excuse me, a public politically charged interactions with Pharisees, scribes, and other religious leaders that will ultimately lead to his arrest and his death. So just to review a few of those, because I I think it's important to understand the dynamic of what the room would have been like where we find Jesus and the disciples and and these people that he was teaching to today. So Jesus uh, has had a a few interactions up to this point. Uh, He has overturned the tables in the temple and driven out the money changers and people who had come to make a living and said, you've got to get out of here. He, he has had an interaction with Pharisees and other religious leaders about what to do with the tax. Who owes money to who? And he's had a conversation about where his authority comes from and has made it clear it's not from them. And then he tells this parable, which is earlier in... Mark. Um, So we're not going to read it today, but I do want to just talk about it briefly because what is distinct, I think, from other parables that Jesus teaches is it is abundantly clear what Jesus is saying. Whereas if you're like me, you're really happy when after a parable, Jesus sits down with the disciples and says, this is what it means. I need that. With this parable, Jesus is pretty clear. So he tells this story about a man who builds a vineyard, builds a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard, and then puts some people in charge and moves away. And and after some time has passed, he sends servants back to collect what the vineyard has produced. And the people that are now running the vineyard kill the servants, or they capture them. They don't let them return. And he sends servant after servant until finally... says he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus says, what the owner is going to do to these who killed his son. Amy, would you put this scripture up? In Mark 12, 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In the NIV, it says he will come and kill those tenants. It's not really vague what he's talking about, is he? Jesus is telling these leaders that because of what you've done, because you haven't trusted the servants my father sent, and now you will not trust me, the end is coming for you. It's poignant. 
To say that maybe the air was tense is a bit of an understatement. And so it is after all of these things that we find these two pieces of scripture that we're going to look at today that appear successive, successively in Mark 12. And we're going to, I'm going to split them into, into two kind of distinct pieces. Uh, I think it's helpful as we look at them. So beginning first at, at Mark 12, verse 38. Jesus is still talking to a large group in the temple. It says, as he taught, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is teaching this in the temple with the scribes and Pharisees and other religious leaders. Now for a moment, forget what the religious leaders might have been thinking. What do you suppose the disciples were thinking? Were they going... I didn't sign up for this, right? Slowly shrinking into the background. I thought I stopped it. Slowly shrinking into the background, right? Now, here's the interesting thing that I think helps us to understand exactly what's going on here is is these disciples actually had signed up with very different expectations for what it was going to mean and what it was going to look like to be a disciple. You see, these are the disciples that had, had left good jobs. They had left families. They had picked up. Jesus had said, come follow me, and they had done it. So what do we need to understand about this time and place to know why they would do that? Now, I've talked about this dynamic a little bit in here before, but what's significant to know is, is that they view the religious institution very differently than we do today. One of the things that we've talked about is the education that that young Jewish kids would have gone through in training. So all all these kids would go to school, and they would weed out the best of the best. And the goal was for these kids to become rabbis. That was the pinnacle. Like, if you were a student to study to get to become a rabbi, that was it. You didn't continue on in school to do really anything Else, as a Jewish kid. So, Maddie, it's like your parents pulling you out at fourth grade because you know what? You didn't cut it. You weren't going to be a rabbi. No more school for you. That was it. Right? That was the pinnacle. But I think in understanding this ancient religious context, I think it's also helpful to examine how they allocated their resources. The people of Israel paid a tithe to the temple. A tithe just means 10%. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and do the math on your yearly income. Just move the decimal place over one spot. 10% to the temple. However, multiple tithes were taken up over the course of a year. And in fact, depending on how we interpret Old Testament scripture, somewhere between... Uh, 12 and 14 tithes were taken over a seven-year period. That means that roughly you gave 20% a year. So take that figure you had and now double it. This would go to support the religious leaders, it would support the temple, the sacrificial system, travel to and from religious feasts. 
It would also go to support the poor, as well as orphans and widows. 20 to 23% off the top, and then they would give offerings on top of that. It's fairly significant. And I tell you that this morning not to confuse our giving here at the church. What I want you to see is how they allocated their resources. The religious system, the temple, these leaders were a value. They were a value. And it sheds greater light on our understanding of why the disciples would have been willing to leave their homes to follow this rabbi. For these disciples, this was a move up. It was a move up the social pecking order. Sure, they left their families, but but we leave our families too. We leave our families to go off to college. We leave our families for better jobs and other opportunities. We move across the country. Social mobility, better opportunities. Like you and I, I'd imagine that they had a picture in their mind of what they were signing up for when they followed Jesus. They had expectations of what it was going to be like. Dan Carlin produces a podcast that I've talked about a little before. It's called Hardcore History. One of the uh, incredible series that he has done is called Blueprint for Armageddon. It's about five episodes and recounts World War One, from beginning to end in about 25 hours. It's a pretty incredible uh, work that he has, he has done there. And in episode two, he shares a journal entry from British Expeditionary Force Officer John Lucy. Now, now hang with me here because this is fascinating. John Lucy is on his way towards battle for the very first time. It's 1914, uh, or the very beginning of the conflict. Right? The British soldier recounts the emotion and feeling he's experienced as he heard artillery firing in the distance for the first time. He said it was a queer and thrilling feeling and it worried him. But here's what's really interesting it's not for the reason that you and I might think that he is worried. This young, adventurous soldier had a very different reason. Hear this excerpt. John Lucy says, Until suddenly, above the tread of our marching feet, we heard the booming of field guns, a queer, thrilling, and menacing sound, about which there were many conjectures, the most popular being that they were French 75s, and they were up there giving it to the Germans. And this notion greatly depressed us. We should really hurry up now. Otherwise, we will miss the battle. The French will get all the glory, while we, with our capacity for deadly rifle fire and dash in the attack, would miss that crowning moment of victory culminating in a sweeping bayonet charge, relentless and invincible, the grand assault that would drive the enemy off the field. In this source, Lucy goes on like this, painting this heroic and romantic picture of what war was going to look like. A grand adventure. We know now that the war drags on for four years. It was not a quick victory. It claims over 17 million lives. 
It was not easy. John Lucy had false expectations for what war was going to be like. And here, I believe that as Jesus slams the religious leaders, the disciples are realizing they had no idea what they had gotten themselves into. Their expectations were off. And I wonder if if we aren't the same. What is it going to mean to be a disciple? Here and now. Have you considered the cost? Have you considered what we might have to give? Have you considered what we might have to give up? And then right after this teaching, it says that Jesus sits down and, and, and he's watching what is happening in the treasury. Picking up at verse 41, it, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, there are typically two ways that this portion of Scripture is exegeted. The first, and probably most common, is that that giving is more about the heart of the giver than the actual gift itself. See, I think it's helpful to, to understand the temple treasury, where this all takes place. It would have consisted of these offering boxes, and on top of the offering boxes were these bronze trumpet-like funnels where you placed your offering. Being that they're made of bronze and you were dropping coins in, it was very clear to all around how much you'd contributed. And so these wealthy people are coming in one after the other, the offerings rattling and jingling throughout the temple. And in comes this widow dropping one and then two coins. And it's significant that she puts in two because as we see it, we know that she could have kept one for herself. Jingle. Jingle. Intense, right? Like how uncomfortable would that have been? This woman gives generously and sacrificially. And so often in in preaching and teaching this text, what we're told is that this is an example of how we are to give. But there's an alternate interpretation, and it's that Jesus is actually going further, condemning the temple and its leaders. This is a system that was supposed to be in place to serve the widow. And here it is, taking her very last All she has to survive on, this system that is supposed to be providing for her, 
is robbing her. So which interpretation is right? What if it's both? What if this text is meant to speak to us both as individuals and to what we are called to be as a community of faith together, a group of sacrificially giving people collectively giving sacrificially? I mentioned earlier this notion of tithe, of giving 10%, of what it would look like if this church gave to the community. What would, excuse me, what would it look like if this church gave to the community in this way? If we committed that one in every $10 in the offering plate would go directly back into the community, not to keeping the lights on, not to maintaining grounds or, or staff salaries, What if we were committed to investing back into the community? Friends, I want you to know that we are going to make that commitment. In addition to the ministry supported, the classes, worship, youth and children's and adult ministries, we are going to take 10% of whatever ends up in that plate. We're going to turn around and we're going to invest it in this city in the community beyond, in this country, and in other places, so that people know who Jesus Christ is. We want to be a difference maker in this community. And we want to do this because we believe that God has called us to partner with what he is already doing right here in the heart of Fort Lauderdale, just off of Las Olas. And what is this going to look like? What should our expectations be? I don't know. But I know there will be moments like the disciples where we're going to look at each other and say, I'm not so sure that we should be doing this. I'm not so sure what we've gotten ourselves into. There will be times when we'll be forced into situations of discomfort with people that we don't agree with doing things that other people will say is crazy and won't work. But I believe that together we can be a church that pours generously and sacrificially into this community. And we do that because we see this life through a new lens, a lens of Jesus Christ that Reagan sang about just moments ago, see the sun bursting through the clouds, black and white turned to color all around. We've been placed here in this community, take the black and white and turn it into vivid color. Will you join with us in doing that? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this place, for this church, for this city where you have placed us. God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us to rest in the confidence that you are doing something. God, understanding that would we join in with what you are already doing that we cannot fail. God, help us to be a people that give both generously and sacrificially. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen, Amen indeed.